Well, December is here. The days are long, the years are short, and uh, we enter our Advent season. And this year during Advent, we are going to breeze through the book of Malachi, the great Italian prophet. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 753. It is the very last book of the Old Testament if you need to find it. Malachi means my messenger. We actually don't know a lot about Malachi. He's here, he, he preaches his sermon, and he moves on. We don't know a lot about him. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named, a preacher named Count Zinzendorf, and here was his life motto. I want this on my grave. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That was Malachi. That's what he did. We don't know much about him. And we're going to look at Malachi for a couple of reasons, but mainly because this is the last book of the Old Testament. This is God's last word to his people before Christmas. In fact, before the very first Christmas. Right after Malachi begins the season of what historians, theologians call the silent years. So God, through Malachi, gives this message to his people, and then he is silent for 400 years until Advent. So it's kind of like a family meeting before the big day. How can we prepare for the coming of the Lord? Final instructions before the first Christmas. A little bit of context for Malachi. I know many of you probably haven't read in a while. The people of God had been in exile. They had been punished. They had been kicked out of their land. They were under the rule of Babylon and Persia. But now, in this context, they had returned back to their land. They were no longer in physical exile. So Malachi writes after Haggai the prophet, after Zechariah. He was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're familiar with those books. It's about the 5th century B.C., And the temple had been rebuilt. If you remember, because of their sin, God kicked them out and the temple was destroyed. Well, you know, Haggai, Zechariah had urged the completion of the new temple. The second temple had been built at the time of Malachi. But the new age hadn't come. Something was still amiss. Though they were back in their lands, they had a temple again. Something just wasn't right. Maybe you remember the reaction of the elders, the older folks when that second temple was built, right? You would think it would be celebration. The young folks did celebrate. But if you remember, what did the old folks do when that second temple was built? They cried because it was nothing like the glory of the first temple. Something wasn't right still. They had been freed from physical exile, but they were still in spiritual exile. All of the glory that the prophets had promised had not come to fulfillment. So they were discouraged. It was a discouraged people. They were questioning God. They lacked a sense of God's love. They were doubting it, which of course leads to all other kinds of problems. If we're not sure that the Lord is on our side, that will lead to all kinds of other problems. And in their case, it led to corrupt worship, corrupt leadership, unfaithful marriages, widespread divorce, greediness, and injustice. And so this is going to be a weighty time as we work through this book together during Advent and hear God's final word to his people as we prepare for the coming of the Lord. And God's really going to call them to repentance. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Repent. Malachi is going to call them to obedience and he's going to warn them about the consequences of not following the Lord, about the coming day of judgment where God would come and he would make it all right. He would bring 
justice and he would bring restoration. It's a short book. You can read it probably in 10, 12 minutes, 55 verses. And it's kind of got this diatribe style we'll see where we have this assertion and then some questioning of that assertion. And then the Lord will respond and bring implications. And so we'll cover two this morning. You'll see what I mean as we walk through. But notice first how he begins his book here. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And this word here for oracle uh, often is translated burden. Here we have a burden on the heart of God. It's an urgent word. It's a weighty word. So much of the Bible is weighty if we actually read it and understand it, which is so countercultural, right? Because our world increasingly just majors on the fluffy, majors on the trivial, majors on the feel good, majors on the shallow, the happy clappy. But here we have a burden from God. This burden is written, he says, to Israel, which is interesting because again, if we know our history, there is no Israel. Remember when the tribes had split, right? The 10 tribes of Israel had been destroyed by Assyria 300 years ago. All that was left was the two tribes. Here we have Judah. That's who's left. That's who, technically speaking, is still around. But here he describes them as Israel. Even though everyone knew Assyria had got rid of Israel, what he's doing here, he's showing that God's age-old promises that he had made to his people will actually come to fulfillment through the remnant that now is Judah and will include the nations, as we'll see in verse 5 and verse 11. This oracle is the word of the Lord to Israel. Notice what he says there in verse 1 by Malachi. Maybe your translation says, by the hand of Malachi. And there we see really what's true of Malachi and what's true of the whole Bible is that there's a dual authorship of scripture. Who wrote the Bible? God did. Who wrote the Bible? Humans did. It's a dual authorship. So it's God through human authorship. As we see right here, it's the word of the Lord by Malachi puts it really nicely, actually. Listen to how 2 Peter 1 puts it. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we got our scripture. It's not by the will of, it's not only human, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to produce what we now call an inspired text, a God-breathed text. So that's the introduction. Now let's consider two of the diatribes here. Number one, the love of God. And then we'll look at number two, impure worship. So first, in these first five verses, we have the love of God. Malachi 1 verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will, re re we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. 
So God begins by telling him that he loves him. He just declares it, and he does this all over the Bible. He declares his love for his people. The Psalms repeatedly proclaim the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It says in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God declares, I have loved you in verse 2, but apparently that declaration was not enough because notice how they respond there in verse 2. They respond in defiance. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Just imagine if I come home to Alicia and I just say, hey, babe, I love you. And she says, oh yeah, how have you loved me? Something's not right there. Something is amiss here with the people of God. They're doubting God's love because of their current circumstances. They had certain expectations of the way life should be. And those expectations were not being met. And so what is their response? God, you don't love us. Because if you loved us, things wouldn't be going this way. They've been marginalized. They've been enslaved. And now, though they're free, they're not flourishing. And so they doubt God's love. We can do that too, can't we? We go through a hard time and we blame God. We have certain expectations, and inevitably, they're not met. And so, we think God's against us. Things don't go exactly as we would draw them up. And again, they never do, right, in this fallen world. And we think God has forgotten us. Maybe we've lost a loved one. Our dreams are unfulfilled. Got physical ailments and disabilities. Emotional distress that we just can't seem to get over. Sickness in the family, battling loneliness and abandonment, spiritually just dried up and we deny God's love because we're basing our emotion on feelings and circumstances instead of the truth. Trials test our faith and they show our true colors. Turn up the heat and the true flavor of the tea bag will come out. So what does God do? He reassures them. Look again at verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, at first glance, that's not real reassuring, is it? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, which Edom was the descendants of Esau, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, I will tear down, and they'll be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God reassures them, how have I loved you? Well, and he gives us a quick twin study. Maybe there's some twins in here. Researchers love to study twins. They give a good example of just a, a, a unique environment to determine, is it more nurture, is it more nature? Well, God does a quick twin study here, but he's got a different view in mind. And he reassures them of his love by reminding them of his sovereignty, of his election. Jacob, I loved, Esau, hated. Sometimes people say that a God of love actually couldn't do this. But here, according to the Bible, it actually demonstrates God's love. How have I loved you? Let me show you. 2 Thess 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you. God's choosing of us is a demonstration of his love. Don't doubt God's love, he says. Remember this twin study. Remember Genesis 25. 
Maybe you remember that story. Rebecca was barren. She becomes pregnant with twins. And before they were born, God told her this, the older will serve the younger. Esau was the firstborn. He was the older than Jacob, but Esau would serve Jacob. I shared before that one of our favorite kids' books is called The Biggest Story. And in this story covering Malachi, it says, God picked Jacob to get the blessing, even though he was the younger brother and wasn't supposed to get the blessing, but God is God, so he gets to pick. It wasn't because Jacob was any better. Remember, if you know the story, he was a snake. Do you remember the picture of the two? Esau was a man's man. Jacob was in his feelings all the time. Esau lived up to that redheaded stereotype. He was fiery and he was hairy. Jacob, Genesis 27, 11 said he was a smooth man. He was stubbly challenged. Meanwhile, Esau's Captain Redbeard over here. <laughs> Jacob stayed home and cooked. Esau was out hunting. Jacob had a Pinterest account. Esau had a Cabela's gold card. <laughs> Esau was impulsive though. And he sold his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. And Jacob then later steals Esau's blessing by pretending to be him. Jacob was deceitful. So God's choice wasn't on Jacob being any better. He wasn't. And he uses this example of twins to show his purpose of election. That's why we saw a few weeks ago in Romans 9, he says this about this story. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Quote from Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And I know it's Christmas time and we don't like to think about God hating. A lot of teachers don't talk about these kinds of verses, but here it is. Mentions it in Psalm 5.5 as well, Psalm 7.11, Proverbs 6, many times actually. But what's important for us to remember is it's not as if God has an emotion like we do. It's not this out-of-control emotion. It just means not chosen in these contexts. It means rejected. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. And their subsequent history bears that out. And so the question, again, has God abandoned his people? Does God still love us? He shows, yes, he does. How? Because of his choice and how he has treated them versus how he has treated other people. Yes, I've loved you. Look. Look at Jacob and Esau and look at their descendants. Look at how I've treated Esau and, and his descendants, Edom, who became the enemy of Israel. God said he laid waste to their lands. He was against them. They try to rebuild the Lord of hosts. That's a military term. The God of armies is going to tear it down again, and they'll be called a wicked country. The Lord has rejected them. Apparently, God did not love Edom and have a wonderful plan for their life. That's his point here. I do love you. Just look at your history. And remember, Israel was just as wicked as Edom. Maybe more because of how much they knew. They were so privileged, but God showed them mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Overwhelming proof of God's love is that he doesn't treat us like we deserve. Doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. The mystery is not, why did God not save Esau? The mystery is, how could he save Jacob? How are any sinners saved? That's the answer. So he loves us. And why does he love us? He loves us because he loves us. Deuteronomy 7 says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest. 
of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God's sovereignty, it's not based on our performance or our position or our power. It's based on the prerogative of God. He loves us because he loves us. They were doubting that. Do you doubt that? Do you know that he loves you? Notice what he does here in this passage. The people of God are doubting his love. What does he do? He points to a historical event. It's not a matter of feeling or speculation or of circumstances. You know what the greatest historical event in history that demonstrates his love for us is? It's Calvary. You ever doubt God's love? Look at that hill called Golgotha and see what he's done for you. That hill stands as a historical landmark to the bountiful love of God. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates, God shows us his love for us and that while we were unworthy, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, we have every reason to be assured by the love of God. And if we doubt it, we need to look at the cross. I recently discovered this hymn. Maybe some of you know it. It was new to me. I want to read it to you. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled. And pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. How has he loved us? Let me count the ways. But beginning, look at the cross of Christ. So they start by questioning God's love. Do you really love us? What have you done, God, to love us? And so then he leads, again, that leads to all kinds of other problems. I think the rest of the problems we'll see in Malachi are the fact that they've doubted God's love. They've doubted who they are in him. And so first off, it leads to polluted worship. See that in verse 6. Impure worship. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. 
and I will not accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For in my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God loves them, but here we learn that God's love is double-sided. It includes correction. Love includes affirmation and appreciation, but also rebuke where needed. And so he begins reminding them who he is. Am I not a father? Am I not a master? Therefore, why are you not honoring me as such? God has graciously adopted Israel as his son. Exodus 4 freed them from Egypt. And yet there's no respect. There's no reverence. There's no obedience. There's no honor. That word for honor is the word kavod. It's the word we, we usually translate glory. They did not glorify him. They did not honor him as God. They lived for themselves rather than for him. And this, friends, is the root problem of all of our sins. It's a failure to honor God. Romans 1 told us that. It's the fruit of the problem. They're not honoring God with their hearts and with their lives. Look again at verse 6. A son honors his father. And a servant is master, if, I, if then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. They've not honored him as God. They've not honored him as father. They've not honored him as master. They've despised his name. They've treated his name with contempt. They've belittled him. Again, externally, they look fine. Externally, they look really religious. People probably thought they honored God. They look good, but now they talk back. How have we despised your name? And the answer is they're not taking worship seriously. They're not honoring God. They're not obeying what God commanded. They're offering this polluted food on his altar, unclean animals and unauthorized sacrifices. They're not giving their first and best. They're giving their worst and last, the blind and the lame and the deaf. And remember, the sacrificial system, they were called to give the best. Listen to Leviticus chapter 22, verse 17. The law commands, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish. For it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. 
animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. This was very clear. There's many, many places in the law that God commands this, the kind of sacrifices that are acceptable to him. Deuteronomy 15, 21 says, if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Instead of giving unblemished animals, they were giving polluted animals. They were giving God the leftovers. Should have been the highest quality, but instead they're just offering defiled food and they think it's just fine and God calls it evil. It is wicked, he says. How have we polluted you, he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. You offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is it not evil? Look at verse 8. Second half there. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? He says, look, would you even bring that to your governor? Like if you got invited to Persia and asked to bring a sacrifice, are you going to bring that blind and lame and and deaf animal to him? What's he going to do? Wouldn't you honor more and yet how much more the Lord of hosts? He's appealing to their common sense. Like you give better gifts to people. If today we were asked to sing, Southside Baptist Church, come, the Queen of England is going to be here, and she wants you to sing on her behalf, how strong would you sing? Would it be any different than we normally sing on a Sunday morning? Some of you just mumbling through the song, I don't like this song, I'm going to skip this one. Worse yet, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and leave early and beat the crowd to lubies. If the Queen of England were here, wouldn't we belt out in her honor? How much more the Lord of hosts? He's appealing to common sense. You give better gifts to people. We give better gifts to our family, right? We're not going to get Christmas is coming. We're not going to get that puppy for our children who's lame and and blind and, and deaf. Daddy, how come he's not coming? Uh, he can't hear you, son. Does he fetch? Well, no, he can't see, and even if he could see, he can't walk to get there. Oh, man, Daddy, what's his name? Lucky. Why's he called Lucky? I don't know, son. Some cruel soul. God's saying, you know better. They've not been committed to the Lord. They've gotten lax in their worship, thinking, oh, God really doesn't care. I know his word says this, but this is more convenient for me. This will cost me less. How should they respond? He says it right here, entreat the favor of God. They should confess their sin. They should turn from it. God invites them and he will forgive. He will be gracious. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says, just shut the whole thing down. He's referring to the temple here. He finds no pleasure in their half-hearted worship, their polluted offerings. No worship at all is better than this half-hearted devotion, God says. They're not taking his law seriously. They're disregarding its prescriptions. 
And it's a big deal. And remember how important the temple was. The temple's not like a church. The temple for them was the center of their life, their economy. Everything took place in the temple. It's where the presence of God was in the old covenant. It's where heaven and earth overlapped. It's where the priests worked. It's where the forgiveness of sins happened. The temple was the center of their life. And God says, just shut the doors if you're going to honor me in this way, which is really no honoring at all. God is upset here. In fact, just a sneak peek, skip over, look at chapter 3, verse 1. We'll get there, but just sneak ahead. He says, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to clean this place out. Remember what Jesus does in his ministry? He heads to Jerusalem. Where does he go? He cleans out the temple. And he says, if you don't turn from your self-centered ways and turn to me, I'm going to destroy this place. There will not be one stone left upon another. And about a generation later, you know what happened? The armies of Rome come in and destroy Jerusalem, and not one stone was left upon another. God takes how we approach him seriously. He says, just shut it down. Malachi warns them. The Lord is coming. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This here is forward pointing. One day, he says, my name, that is his glory, his reputation, it will be great from the rising to the setting of the sun. In other words, everywhere, he says, my name will be honored across the whole earth. Another place, he says, my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Verse 6 says, you are despising my name. Verse 11 says, my name will be honored. This is coming, friends. So better line up. This is the direction of history. So fall in line. Starting with Genesis 12, God's intention was always to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. Check out Amos chapter 9, verse 11. It says, in that day, again, talking about the future from Amos's perspective, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Remember, Edom, that's the descendants of Esau, former enemies of Israel. But in that day, even Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. One day, even the remnant of Edom would be included in a restored, renewed people of God under a son of David. Acts chapter 15 tells us this vision of Amos 9 is coming to fulfillment in the church. The nations will revere the name of the Lord, unlike the current people of God. Look at verse 12. But you, the nations will revere me, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted 
and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. His very own people are giving him a bad name. Paul rebukes the Jewish people in Romans 2 that the name of God is blasphemed among the nations. Here they say we're wearied by all this. We're wearied by worship. We're wearied by the sacrifices. We're wearied by the temple. I'm tired of it. It's become a nuisance. It's become a burden. We're just checking boxes. We're just punching cards. Sunday morning again. Can't we just sleep in? Shouldn't we go camping? Shouldn't we go out of town? We can't miss that game. Wednesday night, you're crazy. The music is bland. Preaching is dry. He rebukes them. He says, you're even stealing stuff and offering it to me. You're taking what's been taken by violence and you're offering it to me. Again, so that it won't cost you anything. You vow, you say with your lips, you vow the healthy bull, but then you only actually give the lame and the sick one. You confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, but by your life it looks like he's only involved in your life for one hour a week. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. The underlying issue here is they were only giving up what wouldn't cost them. I have this over here, but man, I can get a lot of money for that. Let me instead do this. What might God say to us today? Do we offer our first and best or our last and worst? Or do we only offer our first and best to us first? You know, what's going to cause us more comforts? We offer our worst and last to the promotion of the kingdom. We can spat off all kinds of college football statistics, but we can't really recite three verses by heart. You're really good at your hobbies, but you spend precious little time encouraging the people of God. Your kid's really good at sports, but ball has become the all. Your screen time is exponentially greater than the time you spend in prayer. You give when it only benefits you. You serve only when you can be seen. If there's no sacrifice in our sacrifice, is it really sacrifice? They were probably singing, I surrender some. You know, I've got this really strong bull, but man, I can get some money for that. I know it's one year old. I know it's blemished. I know that's what the Bible says. But let's, let's get rid of old Bessie, who's already on her way out. God won't care, will he? Let's pick up that roadkill on the way in. Friends, God wants and deserves our first and our best. He wants all of us. Now, we are New Covenant Christians. We don't offer animal sacrifices, but we still offer spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12 calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We're to offer now not just first and best of whatever livestock, but our entire lives we offer to him. Our whole selves are offered to him. Lord, I am yours. Do with me what you will. I am here for your glory first and foremost. I remember hearing a story of a 
new convert in Africa, and the tradition of that church was to pass a plate. And so she's new. She doesn't really know what's going on. She sees the, the plate being passed, and she says, well, what's the, what's the plate about? I said, well, that's to give our tithes and offerings. And so she's like, oh, no, I don't have anything. And so the plate comes her way, and she doesn't really know what to do. She knows she wants to honor God with everything that she has. So she steps out in the aisle, and she puts the plate down, and she just steps in it. Lord, I ain't got nothing in my pockets, but what I have is yours. I'm presenting my body. I'm presenting all of me. I am here for you, every bit of me. Philippians 4 says that we offer a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God when we give financially towards the mission of the church, Philippians 4.18. Hebrews 13 says that our singing is a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13.16 says that our good works our sacrifices pleasing to God. God wanted their best. He wanted healthy, unblemished animals for sacrifice because he is holy and we are sinful. And maybe we might ask, why does God care so much about the condition of the animal? On one level, we have no right to question God. It's never our prerogative to question him and ask why he does what he does. He's God. But if we come in, in reverence and humility and we want to ask why, I think a couple reasons. I think one, as we've said, he's concerned with our priorities. Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to bring our first and best? Are we devoted to him with our whole selves? Or is this just a Sunday morning thing? But I think he also wants to teach us something. That sacrifice has to be perfect to teach us about Jesus. The whole sacrificial system pointed to the truly perfect one. All of those animals pointed forward to the true unblemished lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Sacrificed on our behalf. Look at what he has done for us. He deserves our first and our best. So friends, as we prepare our hearts, prepare our homes to celebrate the coming of the Lord, let's resolve to be done with the casual and cultural Christianity that surrounds us. No more half-hearted devotion, no more worthless worship, no more selfish service, no more giving just to get. Christ has paid the full penalty of our sins and we receive it by faith and faith alone. He is worthy of all of us. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.